When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and beyond. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Laura Laker. And I'm Adam Tranter. And we're physically in the same room. Wee. Again, for the first time in a while. It's been a while since we've actually put it. What was the last pod we did? I can't remember. Uh, it, we did it about Oxford, didn't we? No. 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 Car free day. Car free day. That was in day. person as well. We're, we're, That's true. We're all, yeah. Just around the corner from here. Yeah. Um, we're in some small offices in the just near London Bridge at the moment. These feel like quite serious times at the moment, don't they? I mean, with all the turmoil in Westminster yeah. and across the country as well. So we're going to address much. something that is uppermost in the minds of, well, one way or another, and to different degrees, just about everybody in the country right yeah. now. Yeah. Yep. Cost of living. Yep. So, yeah, we're going to discuss cost of living and how transport interacts with cost of living and how it affects people and what we can do about it. I mean, so a few facts and figures here. And when you think about how active travel can play a role here in helping the, with the cost of living crisis, petrol sales, interestingly, apparently down 10% on pre-pandemic levels as driving costs soar. And while that's good news for the environment, with some people switching some some trips to cycling, walking, and public transport, it's really bad news for people's mobility. And that's a subject we're definitely going to deal with today. Research indicates that some people are traveling less because of spiraling costs. And um, as a result, here's the point, missing out on education, healthcare, social support, work, in short, if you put bundle all that together, they're missing out on life, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it's really shocking actually. When you start looking at the, st- the stats, I think the average car costs about three and a half grand to run per year, and people are taking out loans and borrowing money just to keep their cars running. There was some research from Sustrans earlier this year about transport poverty, which is classified as needing to spend more than 10% of your income running a car. And in parts of Wales, at least a third of people are in transport poverty. In parts of South Wales, it's more than half. Yeah, there's there's a high demand for investment in active travel, especially in low-income communities. That's research from Sustrans that was released in October. And yeah, I just I just think when you start digging into it, it's um it's quite shocking actually the impact that transport, poor transport, has on people's lives. So we're going to speak to uh, an expert, Ned. We've got a guest. Let me introduce our guest. 
Professor Sarah Marie Hall is a geographer whose research focuses on geographical feminist political economy. Sarah Marie co-authored a report with the Women's Budget Group on the impact of the cost of living crisis. Sarah, that sounds quite technical, but in sort of like layman's terms, because that's how I like to be addressed. Can you tell us about your work? Thank you. So my research looks at the everyday impacts of economic change. I'm interested in the difference they make to the everyday things that we do, that we can afford, that we can dream about. And I'm particularly interested in the impact that economic changes like neoliberalism and recessions and austerity and Brexit, the impact that they have on people's everyday relationships. And tell us, Sarah, when it comes to transport, because cost of living can affect us in lots of different ways. Clearly, you're talking about transport poverty a lot and how that affects people's life choices and outcomes as well. Just tell us how it does affect it and how in the transport lens of the work that you do. Yeah, I mean, there's been a whole wealth of of work in terms of academic work, policy work, activism, campaigning around transport and poverty for many years now. Where I come into these discussions is having done research on the lived experiences, particularly of austerity for the last 12 years, and thinking about how it impacts almost all elements of everyday life. It seeps into almost everything, and transport, of course, is no exception. So I come at it more from that angle rather than from transport necessarily. My colleague, Professor Karen Lucas, she is a transport expert and it was through us having conversations about where some of the work we've done and our observations start to converge that we started to think, you know, that it is about transport austerity. So when I say that, what I mean is both at once direct cuts that have been made to transport in order to pay off national debt, which is ultimately what austerity is, But at the same time, this kind of more everyday condition of transport austerity, where you see this kind of terrible culmination of a lack of affordability for everyday things for people, and you're having services cut, and you're having them becoming relatively more expensive, whilst at the same time, this is where I come in, you see multiple other things happening at the same time. So it's really rare for people to be impacted by austerity in just one way. What you see is that it has many faces, and they can all hit at the same time, or they can hit in different patterns and at different times. It's really interesting that we're having this conversation today, Sarah. So we're speaking to you from London. We're all in a room together. But I've just come down literally this morning from Buxton in Derbyshire, where I was last night. And that involved sitting on... I managed to get a seat, but I was on an Avanti West Coast train down to Euston that I had to change. And it's the first time I've been on the West Coast for a long time, but I've heard all about how it's collapsing as a franchise, you know, because of, well, a variety, a combination of different reasons and the conditions in which passengers are treated. And I was fortunate enough to have a seat, but the people standing next to me, because all the standing space was taken, were having really interesting conversations. They were complete strangers on the train, but they were talking one to the other about the experience that they were having of taking trains, not just today, and it was awful today, but regularly. And those things that you touched on there about the combination of how unpleasant the services are, how unreliable the services are, and how much they cost, led them all one way and another. And some people were travelling for pleasure, so to speak, and some people were travelling simply for work. But the conclusion that everybody seemed to be reaching in that carriage was that this is unsustainable in the sense that they will make choices sooner rather than later which will mean they're not going to travel they all said they can't afford to run their cars anymore and they are right on the brink of making quite substantial lifestyle choices whether that is i'm not going to go on holiday 
I'm not going to take the kids down to London at half term or I'm going to have to leave my job and find something else. It's really interesting you said those things because I really felt that we were on the cusp of people having to make radical changes to their lives because of what's happening to our transport system in its various different ways. I think what we see now is that it's definitely something that's more talked about. It goes beyond that anecdotal element. I mean, what for me is particularly interesting is having seen this discussion emerge from the more kind of field work that I do. So you mentioned the Intersecting Inequalities report. Before that report, I did two years of ethnography with six families in Greater Manchester. And the amount of times that these issues would come up, you know, being with people and having to take a bus all the way into the city centre and back out again, just to be able to go to the post office, you know, to go and withdraw money from benefits that had also been cut. You can't make this up, really. But interestingly, RMT did have a, a report out, a short report, a couple of years ago, two, I think it's more than two years ago now, where they talked about transport austerity. And, you know, it's a bit of a, a warning there that, it wasn't just about the customers and their use of public transport. I know I'm talking about public transport in particular. I think it's very relevant in austerity, but also about their staff as well. And I think that is why we've seen so much support for the recent strikes. Very similar as well. So I'm talking to you from Liverpool today, where I I live. I I work at University of Manchester. And in Liverpool, we had extensive bus strikes with Arriva and the bus drivers secured a substantial pay rise in line with inflation. So I think what we're seeing is that these are things that are impacting people as carers, as parents, as workers, as people going out to have leisure. I think that's why we're seeing so much support for the strikes right now across public transport. When I was in um, Bristol in the summer, I I went into the little shop at the station at Bristol Parkway and um, the lady who worked in there, I can't remember how we got onto the subject actually, but she was saying that she basically has to take a taxi to work, which I thought was quite interesting working at a train station, but that was the only way that she could get to work. Because we've spoken before, I've interviewed you for an article I wrote earlier in the year and... I think you said that these kind of problems, you know, not being able to access basic services have been going on for a long time. It's kind of now that it's affecting the middle classes and people with a louder voice that we're starting to mm. hear a bit more about it, which is quite interesting. Good point, yeah. yeah, but these are kind of intersectionality of these problems has been kind of plaguing people for a long time. And, and there's sort of talk about people not being able to access food banks even because it just isn't transport. And it's, yeah, it's quite striking actually just how many people are in transport poverty or you know just can't afford to have a car and and um or have one that they can't afford and then get into debt but it's yeah it's a long-running problem i think this is where that kind of difference of political views we can see that bearing out too because on the one hand there's an understanding austerity hits okay so austerity is this inevitability that we have to bring in to reduce national debt and some people will be more affected than others then the very people that are affected are affected time and over and over again And so you'll see that you're affected in the housing market, lack of social housing or an increase in private rent at the same time as you might be affected in your job, at the same time as transport links are cut, at the same time as universal credit is cut. And so what you start to see is kind of this layering happening, but this layering happens with the same group. Then, you know, as there should have always been, there's a question of what is inevitable? Is it ever okay for some people to be at the sharpest end? Why was it okay for some people to be at the sharpest end for so long and for so little to have been done about it and for so much complacency politically, but also as a public? 
But now what we see is as the impacts are affecting more people, which will inevitably draw in more of the middle classes. Because we, you know, there's a whole wealth of evidence and, and some of my work has pointed to this and shown that austerity is gendered, it's classed, it's racialized, it impacts on more on disabled people, it impacts more on younger people and on older people. And what we're seeing now is that those kinds of those markers are somewhat being troubled and yeah, and like you said before, austerity is having a much broader effect. That's not to say it's ever okay. You know, it's never okay just because it impacts more people. But it was never okay in the first place. Are other nations any better insulated uh, against this issue than others? Take the Netherlands, for example. In this country, we're very reliant on bus services. And bus services are critical pieces of infrastructure in communities. And often the most socially important routes are the least profitable ones. So the way that the system works is they inevitably get cut or downgraded and, and eventually the service isn't helpful to anybody in the Netherlands like take Utrecht for example I think something like public transport makes up train and bus takes up something like 12% of journeys and over 50% of journeys are at peak time by bike and obviously that's not a, a, a I don't like using the word luxury because I don't think active travel should be a luxury but it's not a luxury that we have here because we don't have the infrastructure so I just wonder if some nations that have better infrastructure for active travel, more rates of active travel, are better insulated because they have a free or low-cost mode of transport. So I don't know if there's any evidence that their life outcomes are any better than, than the poorest in our country. I think you're always going to see differentiations because austerity hits in a context, right? It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It hits in the context both of a person or people's lives and then in a political and historical context too. I'm currently leading a project that looks at experiences in um, the UK, Spain and Italy. And what we're seeing is that while there are concerns, particularly around the cost of living, is kind of accentuating long-term austerity cuts, there isn't as much exposure there because of political decisions that have been made in terms of investment in local energy services. The other thing that I think is important to think about is not just differences between countries, but differences within countries and even within the same region or town. Somewhere like Greater Manchester, where I work, there are huge disparities. There's a lot of urban and rural differences too. And so what we see is that it's not only about whether a country has different cultures or different types of infrastructure, it can also be within a small area. So, for instance, while they, there have obviously been substantial cuts to multiple forms of public transport, you're ultimately going to be more insulated from it if you live more in a city centre because there will be multiple travel options available to you. You might have a tram, a train, a bus and good cycling infrastructure. It might also be possible to walk if you're able the further you get out from those, the harder it is. And that's where you do see your reliance on maybe one mode of public transport, or in some cases, no modes of public transport. I think there's also this question here about, we've talked a little about affordability and a bit about quality and accessibility. And then the triad really is with sustainability, isn't it? And what can often be unfortunate is that when there are these very difficult discussions and indeed difficult experiences that have been had around austerity, there can be the presumption that they sit apart from sustainability, that they 
do different things, that they have different meanings. And there can be a really deep moralizing of those people who have to make choices based on affordability. And sometimes they can be compatible with sustainability. You know, for instance, you mentioned before about being on the train and people talking about how they couldn't afford their car anymore. But then there's the, you know, the argument, what does that mean that they can't do? What social interactions are being shaped by austerity? And one of the things I found with the work I've been doing over a long time is that it can really deeply shape people's personal relationships with other people. You know, it can shape whether or not you can literally be there for somebody, whether or not you can perform the care responsibilities that you may or may not be paid for. And so, yeah, sorry, I've subverted your question a little bit that, you know, I like to think about at different scales to not just between countries. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a it's a really good point, actually. And even within, um, I remember when I was in Cardiff and I was in a, staying with a friend and her house is in quite a poor neighbourhood and just cycling into town. I mean, I was almost put off by it. It was a dual carriageway. And this is a, a big thing that people like Sustrans have reported on, just collision rates and road danger in, in poorer neighbourhood is so much worse and connections to public transport. You mentioned, Sarah, that austerity was experienced differently along all sorts of different lines. And I think the first word you used was gendered. Are women more affected by austerity than men yeah absolutely yeah well, how come women are far more exposed and i also want to add so are people of color working class people and disabled people especially and the reasons being that they are often the key beneficiaries of public services so the majority of local government workers are women majority of welfare recipients are women the majority of those employed in the national health service are women and social care, childcare, women, but then they're also the key recipients of those services too. At the same time, what you also see is that women are, are then also held responsible within our society to fill the gap of the state. So increasing numbers of volunteers. We also see that for households where a second job is needed to be taken on within the family to get more money, it's more likely to be a woman who will do that work if there is one in the household and added to that the majority of single parent households are female headed so I think it's about 90% or upwards and so it's this effect of both being key recipients and beneficiaries and working in these sectors at the same time as there being those groups being held more responsible to fill the gap left by the state And then what you then get is this layering of the effects of austerity that you can be hit in so many ways in your own life. You can be hit by your job, by the care responsibilities that you have, by where you live, by how you get to work. It can be inescapable and it can be exhausting as well. I think this is where it is really important to talk about public transport in particular because public transport is relied upon particularly by women, people of colour. Uh, working class people and disabled people. I think your work's really interesting in that you get these individual experiences from people and I think it's really powerful just hearing about the impact on people's lives of different policies and and different um, services but I wonder if you could you paint a picture of what good would look like and are there places where there are examples of good I know Manchester's bringing in its bus service into government control and bringing down costs but perhaps there's other examples that you're aware of. I don't think we're far off seeing, you know, a a more positive system. I think there can be some benefits with political devolution in that people feel closer and are literally close to the policies that impact on their lives. That's not to say I'm like pro-devo necessarily, just that 
that ideological and physical distancing from decision making can be very problematic and there's amazing groups that look at that so reclaim for instance in greater manchester that makes the case for more working class voices and experiences in political life what i would say is the obvious one is to reverse austerity cuts because what we've seen is them being rolled out over and over again sometimes in the same sectors sometimes in a very short space of time like we have seen with public transport you know multiple cuts to bus routes what we haven't seen is a reinvestment there is some talk in greater manchester about reopening up and restarting bus routes that had been closed down particularly those that work horizontally rather than vertically if that's the right way to think about it you know those that connect towns not just connect to a city center on the whole though i do want to urge for thinking about transport as it's connected to other parts of everyday life and that really is about reinvesting in what you'd call social infrastructure. So this is an argument that the Women's Budget Group have long made and it's something that I've tried to contribute to with my own work by thinking about social infrastructure. It's not only the material things, it's the infrastructure that makes our society work, what we think of as social reproduction, the work of caring, particularly care services especially, but also generally the welfare state in kind of undergirding the economy and allowing the economy to work and investing in that as a way to then invest in other parts of the economy too. And so, you know, things like raising benefits to match with inflation, raising national wages to meet a living wage, uplifts in universal credit, alleviating the impacts of the cost of living crisis with cash first approaches that really have a direct impact on people. One of the things I've argued for for a long time is for devolving regions to devolve their welfare budget and to move away from punitive measures and more towards measures that are more aligned with supporting people rather than punishing them. I recognise that might feel like it's a move away from transport, but transport's embedded in all these issues too. Like I said before, austerity bleeds into the fabric of everything. And if we were to think about transport as being quality, as it being affordable, as it being sustainable, then we have to make sure that's possible for, for people to engage with beyond them just as people who use transport. Do you have a view, Sarah, on free public transport? Because I've seen varying reports and I know that some governments have tried with free access to public transport or ultra low cost public transport as well, the kind of nine euro ticket that Germany trialed i've seen uh, I'm, I'm not an expert i've kind of not looked into the huge detail but i've seen people debate it because you know sometimes it's seen to work sometimes it's seen to actually benefit again benefit middle middle classes and not potentially get people changing their modes and and the people who are it, it's not as clear-cut as you know often people would say free public transport that would solve it but sort of i think that it might not solve it as easily as we might think it might i think the concern that and this isn't necessarily you know my arguments make but I think the concern from some people is that you would see an impact on the quality of the transport if that were to happen however the notion of free public transport isn't necessarily a problem if you ask me the thing is we do have an infrastructure for supporting people in the main we know who who are recipients of universal credit it would be so easy to make free local transport available for those groups. It would not be impossible. We've seen the same with you know, the, the cost of living payments. You know, I refuse to see anything as impossible, really, because we live in such a digitalized society and all the work that was done to move universal credit online to create that sort of system, if it's not going to go, surely it can be used for good in that way. 
What's interesting is when transport's used to mobilise different political views too. I don't know if this is a slight step away, but I think you'll find it interesting that when I started kind of thinking more more about futures as a result of austerity, and I did some work thinking about decisions people make about whether or not they can have children after reading a lot of reports seeing that birth rates were on the decrease with austerity rates as they increase. And, you know, is that correlation or causation? What is that? And I remember reading something really interesting about how in parts of Spain where there had been heavily subsidised public transport, there were also adverts encouraging women to have more children that had been placed on buses, particularly in areas that had ageing populations in order to encourage those areas, you know, to but for obvious reasons, they wanted more young people in there that would rejuvenate the areas, that would be there to be employees and public sector workers. So I think it's interesting, isn't it, what relationship the government has in that? I don't know. So I know that sounds really conspiratorial, but actually I just found it really interesting. Yeah, I think one of my experiences working in a little bit in local government now is is that people who are working in transport passionately believe about you know the improvement in people's life chances and life choices when it would get it right but actually a lot of other government departments aren't that interested actually in that in that conversation and and the thing that really resonated with me with what you were saying is that how much an impact transport has on people and you know whether that is about whether they have children or not or whether that is whether they get a, a good quality job or not or whether they can just go and see their loved ones or not it's not often combined in that way I've always been sort of a little bit frustrated that there hasn't been a better interaction between the health service and transport as well so it's a really good point There was a word that you used at the start which I hear infrequently in these kind of conversations but I'm fascinated by and that's neoliberalism could you just give us a, a kind of, just so I don't have to do it, because um, I'll probably mess it up, a quick overview of neoliberalism and why you think it affects our view on transport so much and, and the kind of the way the transport system is? Because it's effectively let the market forces do what they want and the strongest survive of, of, of effectively. Yeah. So the way I would describe neoliberalism, I hope I'm not going to get rated on this, is, yeah, of course, that transferal of responsibility to market forces but in that transferal of the state to the market it's the retraction of the state from areas that we might have previously thought it to be responsible but at the same time and this is a trick with neoliberalism it's the removal from of responsibility but yet a seeping and kind of all-consuming presence in so many intimate parts of everyday life and so what you see is that the state, for instance, may remove itself increasingly from healthcare, but may increasingly at the same time want to have information and statistics about citizens based on its health. And so there's this sense of it being at once, the state being at a distance, but also being like acutely present in decision making. The welfare state is a really good example of that. We've seen this in austerity, just horrendous, relentless cuts the welfare budget in terms of childcare, housing benefit and uh, job seekers allowance and all these different areas. So retracting at once, but at the same time being omnipresent for people through punitive measures. Why does it impact on transport? Well, because transport 
across the UK and it predates austerity has increasingly become privatised. I mean, that's one thing that we've heard a lot about with recent RMT strikes and Arriva bus strikes is a feeling of the services not working for people, that the services work for the company. And I think that that's a really important question because there is no public transport if you don't have a public to be transported. Yeah, I had a conversation with someone from the um, campaign for better transport and they were saying about, you know, if, if it's going to be a market led thing, public transport, then, you know, have councils set the price at least. I know in, in my hometown, it's sort of 12 miles from the nearest large town and it's now £9.50 to get the bus. And it's, yeah, and it's amazing because now my mum is ferrying my nephews around to sort of job interviews and my sister's ferrying them to college and it's, yeah, and it's kind of people that end up stepping in and you've talked about this in your work. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to hear from you. I think that's a really interesting, if you don't mind me just saying, I've got an example of that. So somebody who was part of the research I did from 2013 to 15, she was called Laura. She had two young boys and I I spent two years getting to know her day-to-day life. What was really interesting is that her and her partner rented, and, and their two kids rented a house that was near a train station. And the whole point of renting near that train station that wasn't in a town centre or city centre it was a slightly suburban area, but the point was that she could get a direct train from there to where her mum lived. They didn't have a car. And so all their decision making around where to rent were based on kind of being a 10 minute walk from there so that she could go and her mum could come. Then the links got cut and the service there is very haphazard if it, you know, if it if it runs at all. And it just shows that people can be really exposed. In transport is a big part of people's decision making. But when it's so precarious, then it can lead to all other precarities. You know, she would lament a lot that she didn't get to see her mum as much as she wanted to. And I really felt for her because she'd made such a big life choice based on that. So we, uh, I think probably we try and avoid being on this podcast party political because it's not really what we do. But we're having quite a, you know, we've strayed into quite political territory here. And for good reason, because it's incredibly serious what we're discussing. Do you sense that something quite enormous potentially is happening in the national debate around transport in the sense that one of the parties, the Labour Party, recently announced a policy that they intended to renationalise the railways in one shape or another. Now, going back half a generation politically, or indeed a bit further, that would have been considered by the mainstream media rampant lefty lunacy and wouldn't have got off the ground, would it, as a concept? And yet it, it seems to have been, broadly speaking, kind of relatively comfortably welcomed by a broad section of the populace and not considered to be a balmy suggestion, possibly because of the lived experience over a number of years of people now. Something appears to be shifting. Do you get that sense as well? Yeah, I definitely do. I do wonder if those proclamations are obviously related to this certain moment, political moment with a small p, that there's a sense that that's the type of policy the public would want to see and would need. Partially, there's the hand being forced because ultimately this, I think one of you said this earlier, it's it's a completely unsustainable situation. You know, it's going to end up at the point where, like I said before, these services will not be used because people can't afford to use them or they use them and the quality of life and the quality of relationships and care and, and work will, you know, degrade. It feels a little bit like too little too late for me. The mass selling off of so many public assets in this country. I don't speak to many people who see, or hear from many people who see that as having been a benefit. And that's absolutely more on the table now, more of a discussion as they've seen those public services erode. 
partly related to those forces we were talking about before, let the market take over, what happens when the market does a rubbish job. But I also I also think that there is an important link here that there's kind of a more of an open debate starting to draw the connections between this kind of the general costs of living that are increasing increasing precarity that people feel in almost many aspects of their lives i mentioned housing and employment before and then at the same time having insufficient public services or not so public services like transport is leading to desperate situations i guess the question i sometimes ask is how how much worse does it have to get which is probably really not a very positive message i'm afraid but i think i've probably been saying that to myself for the last 10 years like how much worse does it have to get before something significant changes and i do feel like there's something happening now i do feel like there's a significant change because it has got that bad just bring it to to just to finish up as well but bringing it kind of just a little bit to active travel because that's not that we we don't do public transport here we we definitely do and 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 it's obviously all interlinked but when it comes to active travel i just wonder what your research and what your views kind of lead you to think and believe on the kind of uh, you know I, I sometimes frame it as a a dignity of of choice really you know I think people should have the choice to have free or very low cost modes of transport available to them and the fact that they do not is a failure on the part of of successive governments and while we can have a discussion on whether it's uh, enough or whether it's happening quick enough and I'm sure you know I, I get frustrated that it's not happening quick enough we are starting to see a, an understanding of the fact that more people cycling, for example, uh, as well as walking, but more people cycling where the biggest uplift is going to be, is going to be a benefit to society. But I don't really, I haven't really heard much of a conversation until very recently on the reasons for that. You know, most of the time it's been around, oh, it's good for the health, isn't it? It's good for your health. It's good for the climate, you know, good for air quality. But, you know, I, I said in my role in the West Midlands, I said that motorists could consider cycling for short journeys and they'd save loads of money. And there was like a, there was a newspaper article about it because it was that, it was that surprising to people. Like they were like, what, what's this guy on about? And I just, no one's really talking about the costs that could be saved through mobilization of, of people and, you know, in active travel. No one's thinking about the benefits that it could have just to have a, like a, you know, good low cost, reliable door to door transportation system, which is what walking and cycling provide so I just wondered yeah maybe just to finish up how your work's linked to active travel or what what kind of learnings and takings you have from the research you've done I think there's something really important about what you said about the dignity of choice and the sense that people have some autonomy and are able to choose what might work best for them in their particular circumstances and that's not to say that you know many people concerned about environmental issues about carbon emissions about rewilding and things like that but a choice to not use active travel isn't always an unethical choice it can be underlaid by lots of decisions that involve a vast balancing of different moralities i think what i guess i just want to push is that that affordable and quality and sustainable public transport and, and travel generally is a right it's not a privilege and to see it as a privilege consistently will always mean that it's the bottom of the agenda. I think there is definitely something about a rights-based language that brings these issues to the fore, especially, and going back to what we were talking about, it's difficult not to think about rights and justice when you think about who is most impacted when a, 
accessible, active, whatnot transport is available. It's the, those who are already most marginalised in society who will be more marginalised if that isn't invested in. Brilliant. Th- thanks, Sarah. So you just, just finding my final question to you, you live in Liverpool and you work in Manchester. How'd you get there? <laughs> I don't cycle. I get <laughs> it's, there a bit, it's quite far to be fair. It's quite a long distance. Yeah. I get there by train. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I'm not necessarily the subject of these discussions. I come from a working class background. I have a lot of family that are, but I'm not claiming it's about me. What you might find interesting is that I, I did live in Manchester for many years. I started working there 10 years ago and I have only lived back in Liverpool for about a year and a half. Where I lived, uh, there was a train station and the trains were always so delayed and cancelled and whatnot. I was having to get taxis home because the bus service was rubbish and it actually takes less time for me to get to work now from Liverpool and is less stressful. And I recognise that I have a deep privilege in being able to do that. I don't have to go in every day. But there is something, isn't there, about what is and isn't possible. I lived on the same side of the city as the university where I work at, and yet moving to another city (laughs) has made it easier for me. And I would imagine there are a lot of people in that same situation. Well, more power to you. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks very much indeed. Keep up the good work, Sarah. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. So that was our cost of living special, to put it in those terms. Wasn't particularly cheerful. They're not particularly cheerful times. Hopefully um, we can bring a bit of light and shade into our next podcast whenever we record the next time around. But it was fascinating. Listen, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Streets Ahead. Our editor has been Claire Mansell. Do let us know what you think. At pod Streets Ahead. Rate us, please. Review us. Bump the algorithm and share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.